haven't been here, um, maybe you're visiting this morning for the first time, maybe you've been here a few times, we want to, um, to know that we appreciate you being here. And it's a blessing to our heart to have you this morning, and you're our special guest, and we pray that God will uh, use the, I'm sure he already has, just with the singing and lifting up praises to our Lord. And uh, now as we open up his word, we pray that the word also will be a blessing to you as, uh, and a challenge to your heart. A little bit of review, for those of you who haven't been here, um, the way that we normally function is just take a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse through that book and seek to unpack what the Lord has for us, uh, to see God's voice through his word. Um, we're not interested in our opinions, we're interested in God's word and his opinion. And so we seek to do, do our best to unpack what God's word says in the book of 1 John, which has been our, our central focus the last several weeks, the, the main theme of the book is to know whether or not you're part of God's family, to know if you are one of God's children. And there's really no more important, no more significant question that every one of us can ask than, am I one of God's children? And the answer um, that God gives us in his word might surprise many of us, because the answer that we hear in our culture today is, is often um, the opposite of what God's Word says. And a lot of people are looking in all the wrong places to discover whether or not they're one of God's children. And so we have to get back to God's Word. And what does God's Word teach us to uh, show us whether or, not we're one of, whether or not we're God's children or we're not His children? And this book, uh, the book of 1 John, is, it's, its main purpose is to uh, unpack that for us. He says in Chapter 5 and verse 13, these things have I written unto you, or in other words, the reason for this book is that you might know that you have eternal life. And, um, and that's the purpose of it, that you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you're one of God's children. The obvious alternative to knowing that you have eternal life is to knowing that you're eternally condemned. And, uh, and that's also important and significant as well. To know, that we're, to know where we stand before God gives us an opportunity to do something about it, right? It was A.W. Tozer who once said, I would rather stand before God now when I can do something about it than to wait to stand before God when I can do nothing about it. And uh, if we can put ourselves in the presence of God this morning and we can see ourselves how he sees us, and we can be really open and honest with ourselves. Some of people might walk out of this auditorium this morning, new people, new creations in Christ. And, and that would be the, the goal of, of, John's, of John's letter. Other people might walk out of here completely confirmed in, in their faith, and that would also be good and, and confident and bold towards the Lord. I had the privilege this week of traveling to, uh, south to L.A. To, um, to watch our daughter play in her first basketball game for the Masters University and, and um, spend some time with my kids. And I had an additional privilege of hearing Dr. MacArthur preach, and he preached on very, very similar uh, thoughts, but the idea of it was, the, the context was to know, how do we know if we're believers? How do we know if we're Christians? And so we want, to, we want to address that, to continue to address that throughout this book. This morning will be kind of a unique sermon because I'm not going to just take a text. I'm actually going to look at various passages of Scripture to kind of give you an idea as to why 1 John flows the way that 1 John flows. We actually come to a place in this very, very short five-chapter book 
And, and John is going to return to talk about something that he's already talked about twice. He's going he's to talk about the same thing a third time. And uh, he's going to repeat himself again and give us an instruction that we would think, you know, by now we've got it. And, and by now he doesn't need to reiterate it again. But John actually is going to reiterate the, um, the same instruction that he's already given us twice or the same identification that he's already given us twice in the book. And I want to give you this morning the reason why that is and, and how the text flows the way that it does and why it flows that way. Remember that there are three evidences in the book of John, in the book of 1 John, for a person's evidences for a person being one of the Lord's children. Um, those three being number one, obedience, number two, love, love for each other, obedience to, to the Lord. And then the third one is faith, or it's important that we obey God's word. It's important that we love people, and it's important that we believe what God's Word says about His Son, Jesus Christ. Those are the three foundational um, evidences that a person truly is a follower of Jesus Christ. Those are fundamental to our faith. John's going to go back, and he's going to repeat these at the end uh, of chapter 4 and then into chapter number 5. And again, John is very repetitive in this process. The book of 1 John is actually a very, very repetitive book. Uh, Dr. MacArthur says this, that uh, he loves the book of 1 John because it gives him the right to be repetitive as well. And, uh, and I can say amen to that because sometimes it may seem like you're hearing the same thing week after week after week, but the authors of Scripture did that, and, uh, and so it kind of gives us the right to do that as well. But we do that because we, the, 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 the truths that are being taught in God's Word are important and they're significant. And John wants us to, to, to grasp the truths that are being taught in God's Word. But, but not only does he want us to get those truths, but there's also a, a secondary reason or a, maybe a more primary reason, and that is there's, there's a certain truth within his repetitiveness. In other words, it's like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? We have four Gospels. And you read those four Gospels and you have a, a story of Jesus Christ's life, right? They are, they are the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They're re revealing to us what Christ's life was like. We read through each one of those and we get a different perspective, don't we? We see things from a different angle. We see Christ's life in, in Matthew very much a, a Jewish, uh, his, his kingdom book. And we see Jesus' life in John with his being the Son of God. And, and we see these different perspectives, and it's helpful for us to get a, a full taste of what God is teaching us through his word about Jesus Christ. In the same way, in the book of 1 John, as John repeats, he's repetitive with these instructions, there's a reason why he's repetitive with these instructions, especially or namely in relation to our eternal security in knowing whether or not we're Christians. So we're going to read in chapter 4, and then we're going to go backwards, and we're going to look at three thoughts this morning from God's Word about this flow, about how this process works that we might know that we're, we're part of His family. He says in verse number 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is an important truth right here. You, you often, um, we look at scripture and we look at salvation and, 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 and again, modern, many modern theologians look at salvation as us pursuing the Lord and then when we pursue the Lord, we find him and people use the terms, I, I'm, I'm glad that I found the Lord or I'm glad that I caught up with the Lord or whatever the case might be. The theology behind that is actually flawed because we don't find the Lord, the Lord finds us. The Lord is not lost. We are lost. We are not seeking the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you take the scriptures at their, for what they say, Romans chapter number three actually says that no one does what? No one seeks after God. So to say the way that you get saved is to seek after God is to contradict what God's word says, which is that no one is ever going to seek after God. What we need to understand is that salvation is something that God seeks after us. God pursues us. Jesus Christ was sent into this world to seek and to save that which was lost, right? So the Lord is seeking us out. The Lord is pursuing us. And, and what's unique about that is, is that his pursuit of us is, is, um, it is an intense pursuit and it is a persevering pursuit, meaning he never stops pursuing us. Once he puts his mark on you, once he identifies you as one of his chosen or as the scripture says, elect, once he identifies you as one of his elect, he then pursues you relentlessly. And he gets you, doesn't he? He doesn't fail in anything that he seeks to accomplish. The Lord Jesus Christ never fails in accomplishing what he seeks to accomplish. Listen, folks, the reality is this morning, if Jesus Christ failed in anything, he could possibly fail in everything. And when you think about the, the, the natural end to that thinking, things get really bad for Christians really fast, don't they? Jesus cannot fail because of who he is, and Jesus cannot fail because of the impact it has on everyone who trusts in him. 1, John 15, or 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about that very thing. If our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is only profitable in this life alone, then we are all men most to be pitied. Because Christ's work is not just an earthly work, it is an eternal work. We, it's not that we love him, it's that he loves us. It's not that we know him, it's that he knows us. It's not that we have accepted him, remember this, it's not that we have accepted Jesus, but that it's that Jesus has accepted us. And when Jesus accepts us, that's when we are brought into a relationship with God the Father, not when we accept Jesus. We need to get that, understand that. Listen, folks, this is what brings us to a state of humility and brokenness before God. This is what brings us to our knees before a holy and just God and pleads with him for mercy and pleads with him for grace and deliverance. Not the idea that we come to him and demand mercy from him and demand deliverance from him. We have no right to demand anything from God. But if we, if we don't comprehend his part in the process and who he is, we miss out on that and we do come to God. And, we, and, and, and you're, 
I grew up in this, in this culture of saying the prayer and you're saved type of a deal, right? And so we said the prayer and we thought we were saved because we said the prayer. It's almost like because I demanded God to save me, he saved me. And I was lost. And I continued to go back to that prayer and continued to go back to that prayer and continued to go back to that prayer until finally one day I realized, John, your faith is in the prayer, not in Jesus. Does that make sense? What I go back to all the time, what I always, what I always go back to to make peace with God is what I'm trusting in. It is, it is God who loves us. It is God who pursued us. It, it is God who, who sent his son into this world to die for us. It is God who sent his spirit into us to live through us. It is God who does all of these things, not us. We're a... <coughs> excuse me. We're beneficiaries. We're benefactors of all that Jesus Christ did. We are his, we are God's reward to Jesus for his great sacrifice on the cross. We need to get that. The truth is so important. And this is love, not that we have loved God. Listen, folks, if you're, if you're building your eternal security this morning on the fact that you love God, what happens tomorrow when you don't love God so much? What happens the day when, when you're going through heartache and you're going through difficulty and you're going through disappointment and God just seems to be far away from you and you just don't have that love for him? What happens to your eternal security then? Our security isn't based upon our love for God. Our security is based upon his love for us. Our salvation is not based upon our love for God. It's based upon his love for us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we all also, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one who has ever seen God, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I'm going to poke, I'm going to focus on this a little bit later, but I want you to, I really want you to take a hold of that last verse. I want you to get this. John says this, no one has ever seen God. We agree with that, right? So how do people see God? Okay. I want you just to think about it. God is seen through us. No one has ever seen God, but, he says, if we love one another... God abides in us and his love is perfected in us or through us. God is seen through his people. And that's how other people get to experience know God and, and possibly come to him for salvation or at least, at the very least, hear the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. So, with that introduction, go with me to 1 John chapter number 1. Three things. I want you to see the process. I want you to see the flow. And I want you to remember this. This flow that is in this text of Scripture is the same exact flow of the whole of Scripture. It, meaning that every, if you take every piece of Scripture and then you take the whole of Scripture, Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, you will see this flow. So John doesn't deter from a, a flow that's consistent with all of Scripture. He utilizes it 
to describe for us where we can have and know eternal security. First of all, we want to remember this. God is dealing specifically with loving other people. Okay, He's, again, reiterating it for the third time. Love other, love people. Okay, now... In chapter number one, he talks about loving people. Verse number, or chapter two, verse number seven. Beloved, I am writing, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now what we see, first of all, we see it, we see it mentioned, referred to in chapter number one, but also in chapter number two, is we see that God the Father commands us to love. It's referred to in chapter number two as a commandment. I give you no new commandment, but I give you an old commandment. That, that old commandment, it's simply the idea of it is, is that it's been the commandment all the way back to the very beginning of time. God, God has called us to three basic truths. He's called us to love others. He's called us to obey his word, and he's, he's called us to believe in his son. And the, and the the call or the command that God has made on us is, a, is an immutable command. It means it, is, it never changes. God's commands have never changes. All of them can be captured in those three basic truths. Believe in Jesus Christ, um, obey God's word, and love people. And we take the Ten Commandments, and that's the basis of those commandments. So we start off with a commandment. God the Father, in relation to our eternal security, we look at God the Father and we realize that he demands certain things from us. He demands those things from us. We, we do not experience eternal security without seeing what God commands being worked out in our lives. We do not experience the eternal security without experiencing obedience and submission to God's commands in our lives. We see that they're commands. We know that salvation does not come by obedience, but it comes by faith or by grace through faith. Salvation comes by grace through faith. But remember this, somebody who gets saved will manifest the commands of God. And it doesn't change the commands of God. Somebody who says, well, I know I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I choose to do whatever I want to do. I believe that the grace of God is a, is a license or a right for me to live however I want to live. Those people have totally misunderstood the gospel of grace. Grace doesn't only say that you, that you are justified, but grace changes you on the inside and makes you new and ultimately changes you on the outside. Grace alters who we are. It empowers us and enables us to do what we ought to do. So the grace of God, we begin with this idea of love. We see it from God the Father's perspective. It is a command. God commands us to love other people. 
It is an unchanging command. Hebrews 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His commands never change. His expectations never change. What God requires of us to be a part of his family never changes. It doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It doesn't change from the Gospels to the New Testament. It is always the same. What God requires of us is always consistent with his character. Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18, the Bible says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall, receive, but you, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God's commands are consistent. From the beginning to the end, what God requires of his people is consistent. Number two, in regards to God, the Father commands us to love. These commands are imperative. They're immutable, meaning they're not changing. They're imperative, meaning that they are absolutely necessary for someone to enter into the presence of God. Hebrews says that there is a holiness without which a man will not see the Lord. So we start off by saying that I am responsible. I am accountable before God to obey his commandments 100%. I am accountable before God to obey his commandments 100%. Don't miss that. Don't lose sight of our accountability to obey God's commandments. And this is a commandment that is unchanging and it is imperative. Here's what he says in James 2 and verse 8 through 10. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you have committed sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but yet fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. In other words, it's the the command of God. We can look at it as the commandments being 10 and, oh, I only broke one. Or we can look at it as, as the command of God, meaning that if I break one, I break, I break them all. Right? At the end of the day, if the 10 commandments are really boiled down in love, and I don't love, I haven't broken one of the commandments, I've broken all of the commandments. What God requires of us is necessary. We must see the commandments of God being worked out in our daily life if we're going to have eternal security. God's commandments are not lost. Remember this. God's commandments are not lost in our salvation. Jesus says, I did not come to do away with the law or destroy the law. I came to do what? I came to fulfill the law came to fulfill the law. God, the Father, commands us to love. It is an imperative command. It is an immutable command. And remember, number three, it is an impossible command. What God requires of us is not to love sometimes, but what God requires of us is to love all of the times. What God requires of us is not to just love our friends, But what God requires of us is to love our enemies, right? 
God requires these things of his children. These are commands. These are expectations. And it is impossible for us to do these things according to his standard. The Bible says in Romans 3, we, I, 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 I averted to it earlier, but he talks about no one does good. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. No, not even one. The Bible says in Romans 8 and verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The natural mind is incapable of submitting itself to God's law. It's impossible to do. However, at the same time, listen, at the same time that our mind is, it is impossible for our minds to get around the idea of submitting to God's law, it does not change the fact that God requires us to obey his law. You will never understand grace and the significance of Jesus Christ until you wrap your arms around what God expects from you. You have to get your arms around that. You have to embrace what God expects from you in order to embrace what Jesus Christ did for you. There's a lot of people, folks, that sit in pews every single Sunday morning who have embraced the idea that they're pretty good people. They're willing to let Jesus Christ join them for their journey in their life, right? The problem with that is, is they're not willing to join Jesus in his life for his journey. And listen, the Christian life is not Jesus joining you in your life for your journey. It is you joining Jesus in his life for his journey. God requires of us. He requires these things 100% unquestioned, perfect obedience to these things. And we cannot, it is impossible for us to carry these things out. Romans 3 and verse 19 says, For now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world, all the world, might become guilty before God. You see, the gospel is meant to take a guilty world, a guilty individual, and to transform them into innocent. Here's the great struggle that we have today. Mankind is unwilling to be guilty. Unwilling to be guilty. So God sent his law into the world. John talks about it here. Here's the commandment. You love other people perfectly. This isn't a new commandment. It's an old commandment. I'm not throwing out any new ideas here. You love people perfectly. Right? It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. So God the Father commands us to love. Number two, if you'll follow with me down into chapter number three. So God commands this of us. We are incapable of accomplishing it, aren't we? So what God does is, 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. God the son came into this world, took upon himself, was a man, became a man, and he lived 
in this life perfectly all of the things that God the Father required of him, right? Jesus Christ satisfied all of God's commands that he made upon mankind. Remember this, okay? Everything that God meant to do with mankind was accomplished in Jesus Christ. Everything that God meant to do with mankind was accomplished in Jesus Christ. The Bible calls it first Adam versus second Adam. First Adam, God created perfectly, and he fell into sin and distorted all people after him. Second Adam, God the Son, perfect, never failed, but yet was tempted in all points just like we are. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, accomplished what Adam, the first Adam, was incapable of accomplishing. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, accomplishes what you and I, in the first Adam, are not capable of accomplishing. This is very, very important. Let's look at what he says here. Verse 16 in chapter 3 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren and he talks more in this, in this passage of Scripture, but I just want to focus in on that verse. What he's referring to here is he's referring to the life of Christ, that Christ Jesus was the fulfillment of God's requirement for us to love others perfectly, to love others righteously. The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 8, for God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Us. First Peter 1 Peter 1.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15 says, we now have this high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ is, was the perfect son of God. He was perfect God. He was perfect man. He was the fulfillment of all the things that God requires of his people. And when you get down to love, he says this, John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend. Who is he referring to there? He's referring to the work of Jesus Christ. John chapter number 10, he says in verse number 11, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. Never has anyone loved like Jesus loved. Never has anyone loved like Jesus loved. He is the epitome of perfect, sacrificial, selfless love. He is the fulfillment of what God requires, commands of his people. Ultimately, folks, if we want to see what God requires of us, all we have to do is look at his son, Jesus Christ, and we can see all of God's commands Fulfilled in one person. Two things about God's, the Son, completing love for us. Number one is satisfaction. Jesus Christ satisfied God's requirements for our sins in two ways. In two ways, okay? Number one, Jesus Christ satisfied God's requirement for our sins in that he obeyed all of God's commandments, okay? 
He kept every one of God's commandments. He kept everything that God asked or requested of us or required of us. Jesus Christ completely and totally satisfied it. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus Christ came to satisfy every requirement that God made on his people. And he did it perfectly. And we read the verses earlier that he never sinned. Not one time. Jesus Christ never sinned. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. 33 years of his life, he then hung on the tree for the sins of other people. He was buried, the Bible says, for three days. He rose again the third day, defeating all things that are against all evil, all Satan's works and hell. Jesus Christ defeated everything. He satisfied God's law in being obedient to it. Not only did he satisfy God's law in being obedient to it, but he also satisfied God's wrath on behalf of those who were not obedient to it. You see, Jesus Christ did everything perfect. He never sinned one time, but not only did he do that, which is great, right? But he also then took upon himself the sins of the world the sins of his people, those who would believe. He took those sins on himself and he died on a tree and he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And and I will submit to you, when you look to the cross and you see the extent of Jesus Christ's suffering, know this. Know that that was what we were worthy of. That was what our sins demanded. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, it was God the Father pouring out on God the Son everything that he required of sinners. You see, the interesting thing about God the Father is is God the Father is perfectly just. When he wrote the law, he demanded that it be perfectly obeyed and he demanded a perfect sacrifice for it. That is why it is such a horrific sacrifice on our behalf because our sins required that type of sacrifice. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him. Other versions say this, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He hath put him to grief. When his soul hath made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God hath done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Amen? Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the flesh. To the Spirit. Jesus Christ satisfied all of the requirements that God hath made towards his people. In doing that, number two, if you're taking notes, he was satisfaction. Number two, he was standard. Get this. You ever had a you ever had a um, you ever have, ever have a teacher that graded on a curve? Anybody have a teacher that graded on a curve? 
Okay? So it's interesting. The teacher that grades on a curve takes, takes the highest score in the class, right? And that becomes the 100%. So, so if, if everybody gets below an 80, then 80% becomes 100%, right? So they basically say, okay, we're going we're gonna to curve it because obviously the test was too difficult. So we're going to curve it to that 80%. And now everybody is going to be graded 80% or below. That's 100%. Listen to me. When Jesus Christ came into this world and he satisfied God's wrath or God's wrath, God's expectation, first of all, perfectly, the curve was removed. It was removed. There's no curve. Because someone satisfied all of God's commandments perfectly. In the flesh. People say, well, he was, son, he was the son of God. Jesus Christ satisfied every one of God's commandments as a man. There's no curve. He was the satisfaction of what God required. He was the satisfaction of God's wrath. And he's also now the standard by which the world will be judged. It's a serious deal, isn't it? Second Corinthians, the Bible says in chapter 2, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, it is a fragrance of death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Jesus Christ was the satisfaction of all God required, and Jesus Christ was the standard by which and through which all man will be judged. Now, God the Father commands love. God the Son completes love. Now we get to our text, and who do you think we're introduced to in our text this morning? God the Holy Spirit. And what God the Holy Spirit does is God the Holy Spirit confers love. It means that he gives us. God the Son accomplished everything for us. God the Holy Spirit gifts everything to us. He takes what Jesus Christ accomplished and he applies it to our lives. So we become the benefactors, the beneficiaries of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We get to experience all of the blessings that Jesus Christ deserved to experience because he experienced all of the cursings that we deserve to experience, right? The Holy Spirit makes all of this become real. He makes it all practical when he comes to live inside of you. He then represents you to God the Father. And because he represents you and he is God the Son's spirit, because his representation is there, God the Father sees you as if you have completed all of the things required by God the Father. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God. That you might become the righteousness of God in Him, or in Christ, or Christ in you. We benefit 
from what Jesus Christ accomplished by having his spirit living within us. He confers it to us. He is it for us. We get through, and I wrote the word down if you're taking notes again, through imputation. We get through imputation all of the things that Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. It, it literally means, it's, it's, a, it's a big fancy word, but it's not, that, it's not that hard to explain. It literally means that our record over here, which is full of sinfulness, is taken out of our record and it's put over here in Christ Jesus' record. And then his record, which is completely full of all good things, not just empty, you know, we think of it being empty, but it's really full of all goodness. And that's taken out and that's put into our record. God treats us as if we accomplished what Jesus Christ accomplished. God treats Jesus as if he accomplished what we accomplished. Does that make sense? That's imputation. The Holy Spirit of God, when he comes to live within you, it is Christ in you. And all of the benefits of what Christ accomplished for you are then applied to you. Now, that's all encouraging and good. We have commandments, right? We have a completer in Christ. Christ completes everything. We have the one who confers it to us. But lastly, in regards to his conferring it to us, I want you to remember this. He not only imputes it to us, but he imparts it to us. Meaning this, what happens is, is we get to manifest. We get to, we get to live out the fact that God lives in. You see, that's truly the evidence. God requires the God requires perfection from us. The, spirit, the, the, the Son of God accomplishes perfection for us. The Spirit of God implants perfection in us, right? And then when you start to see that come out of us, then you know that you are a child of God. You see, what happens is, is all of the work of God, it's all the work of the Trinity. He's doing everything, right? Where do we get our confidence and boldness from? It's when we see the work of the Trinity coming out of us. It's when we can see it. It's when things begin to happen, when attitudes begin to come out of you, when actions begin to come out of you that you know are not from you, but they are from something supernatural in you. And it's at that point in time in your life as a Christian that you begin to know that you are one of God's children. And then it's like he says in chapter um, 5 and he says it in chapter 4 too. He says that at this point we become confident. We become bold to begin to do the things that God requires us to do because now we're sure that we are his children. Let me ask you this morning in closing, where are you at in that whole picture. We want to we exalt all of the work of God. We, we know this morning that it is totally a work of God. But, but my, 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 my burden is this. A lot of us sit in church on Sundays and we go through the routine. We go through the routine in our lives. We, we know we have to do, maybe, maybe we do a few things here and there. We do our benevolence to people. We, we have all of these little things that we do, but 
But let me ask you this question. Have you seen God coming through your life? Have you seen God coming through your life? Because this is the greatest greatest evidence that you can have that you are one of his children, is that his spirit lives inside of you and that his spirit is working out of you what his spirit has worked in you. I believe it's in Philippians chapter number one, Philippians chapter number two, and um, the Bible says in verse, I believe it's 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both the ability and the desire to do his good pleasure. At the end of the day, you say, you know, Pastor John, I'm, I'm not. I've never seen the Spirit of God working in me. I've never seen the Spirit of God coming out of me. I don't know what to do. My suggestion to you is that you ask the Lord for the Spirit. The Bible says that a, an earthly father knows how to give good gifts for his children. How much more shall the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And you know something? If you ask the Father for the Holy Spirit and he doesn't give it to you, do you know what I, you know what I suggest that you do? You ask again. And if he doesn't give it to you the second time, you ask again. And you ask until you have it. It isn't an option. This is eternal. You ask and you ask and you ask. Like if you were asking for bread and hadn't eaten for a month. You ask and you ask and you ask. Not until you think you have the Spirit of God living within you because you ask, but until you see the fruit of the Spirit of God living within you, you ask. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know something, I know God, I've seen it. Man, listen, be bold, be brave. We have nothing to fear, do we? We are, if you are saved this morning, you are God's child. You see his fruits coming through you. You be bold and brave. And then lastly, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you have something in your mind that you're concerned about. Maybe they have professed Christianity, but it's pretty obvious to you that there is a lack of the Spirit of God living within them. We probably all have people like that in our world. Here's what my challenge to you is. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God's Spirit will convict their hearts, that they will see what He requires of them, that they will understand that they cannot satisfy what God requires of them, that they will embrace Jesus Christ and they will plead with his spirit to come into them. And then I'd say as well, not just pray for them, but if you have an opportunity, say something to them. We had a, I'm, I'm gonna close with this illustration. We had a, um, back home I worked a second job at a medical clinic and we went through a, a branding process, right? So we got this theme, this was our theme. It was really short, brief, and just like it said who we were. And the whole idea of the brand was this. If anybody ever goes off brand, you just say to them, is that who we are? Right? You didn't have to really, you know, attack them or come down on them. You just say, hey, is that who we are? This is our brand. This is what you're doing. Does that really say who we are? Sometimes we need to do that to people who profess to be Christians. Is that really who we are? 
Because some people have been deceived into believing that they are followers of Jesus Christ and all we see coming out of them is the fruit of the flesh. It's true, isn't it? And their soul is on the line and we can't be afraid. Yes, we can be wise and and we can be um, diligent in how we present it, but ask them, hey, is is that who we are? We can say the truth in love. I encourage you to do that and to know that we are in the last days and the Lord Jesus Christ's return could be very soon and to have a passion and a burden for the hearts and lives and souls of the people that we're around. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for the salvation that you have um, gifted to us and the indwelling Holy Spirit that guides us and empowers us and enables us to do the things that you require of us. Lord, if we see those things coming out of us, Lord, not perfectly, but they come out of us and we see your spirit presence there, might it make us bold, might it make us confident and courageous to do things for your kingdom and for your glory that only your spirit's indwelling could cause us to do. We pray your blessing upon the remainder of our service this morning and this week that you will be with us in a special way to work out your will in our lives. We pray your blessing upon the Harvest Festival on Tuesday, Lord God. Be with those who will be a part of it and um, be glorified in it all. In Christ's name, amen.